preaching a third sermon on sharing um, our faith, sharing about Jesus with the people in our lives, our friends, co-workers, neighbors, um, whoever God has put in our life, wherever maybe you're serving somewhere in the network and you're having the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Um, I, I've been saying these sermons have felt more like equipping sessions, kind of more like training sessions, um, super practical. But I think one of the most strategic things that we can do in this season is do everything we can do to equip you where God has planted you. Um, I said this last week, but the days of just being able to bring your friend to the pastor so the pastor can tell them about Jesus, um, those days are gone, all right? Honestly, they left before the pandemic, but the pandemic is accentuating this reality, all right? Um, and so the best thing we can do, you have the same Holy Spirit that I do, right? You are filled with that same spirit. And so you are empowered. Um, God's presence is with you. And here's the beautiful thing, too. When we all, like one of our phrases here at the Gospel Tab is everybody gets to play. When we all play, when we all jump into what God is doing, God uses us in really unique, special ways. God's actually able to use you in ways that he wouldn't use me because we're different people. And this is a beautiful picture of how God is working in the world, all right? So um, I've been saying for the last couple weeks that a key passage for me in understanding how to use my mouth to talk about Jesus with people in my life has been Acts chapter 17. Um, this part of the ancient uh, leader of the church, missionary, um, Paul, when he is traveling through the ancient world from city to city and he passes through the city, ancient city of Athens um, in Greece in Acts chapter 17. And eventually in Athens, he's invited to talk to the city's elites, um, the intellectual elites, the political elites in that city. And, uh, and he shares with them the truth about Jesus. And his speech, if you want to call it that, is recorded there in Acts 17, and I think it's so helpful to see what Paul did and how God used Paul. Um, I keep saying, you might never like make a speech, you might not like stand up with a microphone and tell people about Jesus. Um, it just might be over coffee or might be in friendship with someone, but I think there's things uh, that we can really learn from Acts 17. So just a quick review before we read together. I think I have it up here on the screen somewhere after the verses. I think it's after the verses. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. I said um, Paul does three things in this passage. Um, first of all, he listens. Um, so we talked two weeks ago about how Paul takes this posture of humility, of trying to understand the city that he's in, trying to listen to the people in it, um, particularly, he's listening for their aspirations, right? For what they want, for what they're looking for. We said two weeks ago that at the end of what a group of people is looking for is often their idolatries, right? The things that they are reaching out for to try to fill in the gaps of what they feel like they're missing. There's bad news in their life. They're looking for good news. And so they're reaching out and trying to find these things. Paul then identifies the idolatry in the city. In Athens, it looks like statues made of wood and gold and silver and stone. Um, and particularly, he sees where the idolatries have left them wanting more. And this is what we want to pay attention to in the relationships where God has placed us. 
is where have a person's or a group of people's idolatries left them feeling empty, right? And so he notices that there's a statue to an unknown God that even though the city is filled with statues, filled with idols, it's like they can never have enough because this is the nature of our idolatries. They always promise us satisfaction and always leave us feeling like we don't have satisfaction, right? So the city is filled with idols, but they make an idol um, signifying that they know they don't have enough idols, right? <laughs> this is a statue to an unknown God. We know that we're still missing something. So Paul listens, notices that, and that's then what he speaks to. That's what he takes the time to address, uh, the reality of this unknown God. So we talked about listening and really trying to understand the people that God has put us near to in relationship. And then Paul invites them into a story. I said last week that I think one of the greatest things we can learn in, in uh, sharing about Jesus with people in our lives is to learn to be good storytellers. And I do think this is practice, and I think even if we're not good at it, God will use us, right, and sharpen us. But we step into this reality just by practicing, by doing it, right? And so I said last week that we tell God's story, and particularly we tell the parts of God's story in the scriptures that are good news for the bad news of the people we're hanging out with, right? There's particular bad news that people are experiencing, and so we talk about how God is good news for that bad news. We tell them some of our story, right? And I said this isn't an exercise in trying to just like prove our point. It's actually an exercise in vulnerability, when we tell our story and talk about what God has done in our lives, um, we open up that part of our lives to the people around us and say, I want to be vulnerable in this too. I want to tell you about what God has done in my life, right? Um, so we talked about being good storytellers. Oh, and then we said, uh, we also tell their story. And I was saying, this isn't about co-opting their story or telling them how they should feel, um, but it's about listening good enough, um, listening well enough, so that we are able to point out where God might be showing up in their story, right? Hey, when you shared this with me, um, I noticed that God showed up for you like this, you know? And sometimes people just, it's helpful for people just for us to point out where God is showing up in their story. But where all of this is headed for Paul in Acts 17 is holding out the uniqueness of Jesus. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Um, Paul takes all of this listening and all of this storytelling and he holds out to them a particular person, right? And that person is Jesus. So we're going to read the same passage that we've read the last two weeks. And last week, I invited you to read it with me in unison. I would love it if you did that with me again. So let's read together, beginning in Acts 17, verse 22. Let's read together. People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Let's just leave it on that slide right there, those last few verses. This is where Paul holds out the uniqueness of Jesus to his hearers. Look at this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul is clearly calling for a turning. Um, he is saying that a turning is necessary. Um, a turning from one way of living and life, from one way of experiencing life to another way of experiencing life. That's what the word repent means, to literally turn. Um, so he is clearly calling for some kind of decision, um, some kind of turning um, to happen here. But that turning has an object. And this is important because I think sometimes we ask people to repent in the wrong way. And here's what I mean. I think sometimes we ask people to repent from one behavior to another behavior. I think sometimes we ask people to repent from one kind of culture to another kind of culture, you know? Like we want them to repent from whatever culture they were a part of to be part of our church culture, right? Um, too often we have made good church members instead of disciples of Jesus, right? And ask people just to fit inside the church systems that we've created and we want them to just kind of like talk like us and act like us and think like us and, you know, all of that. Like that's what we're asking them to fit inside of. And I think when we do that, we're asking for the wrong kind of repentance. There is a turning, but the turning is always from wherever we were when Jesus found us to Jesus, right? The repentance is always to Jesus. It's not to our church culture. It's not to our opinions about things. It's not even to certain behaviors, even though certain behaviors are right and wrong. The turning is always to Jesus. He is always the object of our repentance. Wherever we were when we heard this good news and repented, we repent and turn toward him, right? Paul says it in the next sentence, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. That man is Jesus, right? Um, for Paul, Jesus is the dividing line of human history and of all eternity, Jesus is the fault line, right, that divides everything. It's Jesus at the center, right? When we talk about mission here at the Gospel Tab, we like to talk about relentless Christology. What we're talking about is that the most important person to us is Jesus at the center of who we are. Even more important than, you know, certain doctrinal positions, as important as those things can be, what defines us is not particular doctrinal positions. What defines us is truth, truth defined as a person. Truth is a person in the scriptures. Truth is Jesus, right? And everything flows from him, right? 
So we hold Jesus at the center. And I cannot overemphasize. You feel me getting a little worked up here. But I cannot overemphasize how important this is in, which, in the day in which we live. Because as long as the gospel tab exists, uh, God willing, as long as our network exists, God willing, we do not here preach anything but Jesus. We don't preach ourselves, right? We don't preach our church culture. We don't preach a certain brand of Christianity that we're pushing out there in the world, right? We preach Jesus. We don't preach just like minute, um, you know, uh, doctrinal positions that Christians have divided about over the years. I'm not even saying these things aren't important. I'm just saying we preach Jesus. We don't preach politics. We preach Jesus, right? And Jesus does have implications for all of these things, right? Following Jesus in the world has implications for how we engage politics. It's just we preach him, right, and his lordship. Because this is the man that has been appointed, right? This is the man by which God will judge the world. Do you know that in the end, at the judgment, um, the, the great question is going to be what we did with Jesus and his claims, did we accept or reject the son? Did we accept or reject the one whom God appointed? That's going to be the question. You know what's not going to be the question? How you voted this November, right? You know what's not going to be the question is, you know, even though certain behaviors are right and wrong, the question isn't going to be which behaviors you rejected or accepted. It's going to be what you did with Jesus, right? And yes, Jesus does affect the way we live right? Um, but the question is what we do with Jesus, right? And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul here is holding out Jesus's uniqueness, right, in human history, that this is the one whom God appointed and was raised from the dead. Everyone has to wrestle with that, right? If this man was raised from the dead, and if this man claimed to be God in human flesh, and these are the things we all have to wrestle with, right? And decide, do we submit to this and believe this, or do we reject this? It's the choice that every person has to make. It's the choice that every human being has to make, right? This is the uniqueness of Christ, that he was raised from the dead. So we're definitely holding this out. Now let me say a few things about this, about what it means to hold out the uniqueness of Christ. First of all, kind of already got into this, but Jesus is the main point. And if Jesus is the main point, I think I have some of this on a slide. Thanks. Um, if Jesus is the main point, then it means that Jesus is what we should be known for more than anything else. I think one of the most radical things that happens in our family on mission is when we baptize people and they confess, what? Right before they get baptized, that Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. This is always for all of Christian history, been the most radical thing that Christians confess, that Jesus is Lord, that before something else was Lord, right? Maybe it was myself, maybe it was some human ruler, maybe it was, you know, my job, maybe it was any number of things, a political ideology, something else was Lord, but now I have switched kingdoms, right? And now Jesus is Lord. It's the most radical thing that we confess, you know, the early Christians, when they confessed this reality in ancient times that Jesus is Lord, it was so controversial because they were confessing that Caesar was not Lord, right? 
that Jesus was for them, right? Doesn't mean they didn't honor Caesar. They honored Caesar. It's just he wasn't their Lord, right? And they had a Lord, and it was Jesus, right? It was what they confessed. And you better believe that that sounded controversial to the people who heard it, you know, um, when Caesar was claiming that responsibility or claiming that right, right, to be Lord in people's lives. And this reality of Jesus being Lord did affect every part of their life. If Jesus is Lord, then it does affect everything about us. For the early believers, it affected relationships and it reflected it affected how they parented and affected their marriages and it affected sexual relationships. If Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord of all of our relationships. Um, it affected what they could and could not participate in. If Jesus is Lord, there's certain things we can't do anymore. But if Jesus is Lord, then there's certain things we're going to do that we didn't do before. Let me give you two examples like from the early believers. First of all, it says in the books, book of Acts that the believers started to share all of their possessions with each other. They started, this is what confessing Jesus is Lord will do. It means we look at our stuff and we go, oh, it's not mine anymore. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> you know? Like this doesn't belong to me anymore, right? So they started sharing all their stuff. This seemed crazy to the people who were watching it, you know? In a world where, much like ours today, where everyone was trying to get their hands on every little last thing and call it their own, and this is mine. Well, no, nothing that I own is mine if Jesus is Lord. It's Jesus's, right? This changes the way that we relate to our possessions. And if I know this isn't mine, then hopefully I can give it to you. Here, Darren, I'm just teasing. I want it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> right? Then it means that we're willing to give stuff away, right? Um, or this one. Do you know that just a generation after the New Testament was written, the early Christians started to think about the implications of Jesus being Lord for slavery in the empire? Um, and they started to ask the question, um, what should these relationships look like? And it meant that Christian slave owners who became Christians started to release their slaves. More than that, get this, some of the early Christians, we actually have a record of this in Christian writings in the ancient city of Corinth right after the New Testament was written. Some of the Christians started to sell themselves into slavery to free their brothers and sisters who were in slavery. Can you imagine such a thing? Give, what would lead someone to give up their own rights like that so that somebody else could be free? Well, for them, it's because Jesus is Lord, right? This is what they confessed at their baptisms. It's what we confess at our baptisms. Jesus is Lord. So it means that I can give up my rights, right? Because my freedom is found in Jesus, right? And if I can give some of that away so that somebody else can experience freedom, then I'm willing to do that. The confession that Jesus is Lord is the most radical thing that we say, and it is then what we should be known for. Personally, I'm doing a study in the New Testament book of Galatians right now. Um, great book, and I, we might end up preaching out of it eventually. Um, but I've been spending a lot of time in Galatians, and I, another sermon for another time. But Paul, in Galatians, he's writing to these you know, believers that he was involved in planting this church, and he is so concerned that nothing else become the main point. It cannot be Jesus plus anything else. He's so concerned about this. And you know what he's really debating is Christians who believe that the Old Testament law should be added to this message of grace, right? That these new believers should step into these certain kinds of behaviors. 
and Paul's very concerned about the behaviors of the family on mission, but Paul does not even want that, doesn't even want the law to become what these new believers are known for. He wants them to be known, he wants them to be known about Jesus. And so I think, when I think about like conversations with people in my life, I ask myself this question, is the thing they know most about me that Jesus is Lord? Is the thing they are most aware of about me is that Jesus is Lord in my life? Or do they know my political ideology more? Do they know my opinions on things more? Um, do they know, you know, I don't, I don't know, like other things, like what do they, what's the main thing, you know, that they know about me? Jesus is Lord, right? I want them to, I want to, I want the people in my life to know this about me more than anything else. It's what I want people to know about our church more than anything else is that Jesus is Lord, right? And yes, this affects everything. The, the confession that Jesus is Lord affects everything, but it is the first thing that we confess, right? So I always want to make it the main point. In my conversations with people about Jesus, I really try to resist getting off track and talking about something besides Jesus, right? So here's what I mean. I've had people approach me and ask me, does this certain behavior um, mean that I can't get into heaven? Right? I've had people like ask me that question. Well, what's our answer to that? Especially if the behavior that they're holding out to me is wrong. Um, the answer to that is, what decides heaven is the acceptance or rejection of Jesus? Right? That behavior is an important discussion. And the Bible probably says something about it, if it's right or if it's wrong. But God is not going to judge the world by the behavior that he's appointed, right? He's going to judge the world by the man that he has appointed. And I want to keep talking about Jesus, right? I'm not avoiding people's questions. It's just I never even want to um, come across at all like I'm moving off of the main point, right? I want to keep talking about Jesus to someone, all right? And the truth is, no matter what behavior someone is engaging in, repentance will look like turning from wherever they are in that behavior to Jesus, right? He is the object, not just to some other better behavior, right? We didn't convert to just some better behavior, right? We turn to a person who is the truth to Jesus, right? So that's always uh, who I want to hold out. Or I think about the times, you know, when someone has tried to debate with me. One time I was out in the street, actually with a leader from this church, and I, I ran into someone who's part of a very obscure religious movement that started in New York City. I mean, there's, there's got to only be a few thousand of, of this religious movement that's basically like a cult, this religious movement in the United States. I couldn't believe that I ran into this person in Aliquippa. Um, but I had heard of this religious movement, but I was very unfamiliar with it. Um, and this person was extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent, well-read, and right away, when I said that I was a follower of Jesus, and by the way, even when I'm out on the street, that's kind of how I end up identifying myself. Like if we're praying for sick people, I'll just kind of say, I'm Joel, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's the first thing that I want people to know about me, you know, is that I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Um, that's the thing that I want people to know defines my life, right? And so, um, yeah, so I, I think I said this to this person, and right away they became kind of aggressive, you know? 
and started just going. You could tell they had been trained to debate, you know. Um, for me, I don't want to get off into all of these debates, you know, into politics and history and, you know, all of these things. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that these things aren't important. I think they are important, but here's what I end up doing. I end up going back into listening mode, you know, which was our first step. If I don't understand what's being said to me, it's not my responsibility to debate every point of it and to prove my point. Um, I want to earn this person's trust by going back to listening and asking questions and trying to understand. And that pretty much turned into what our whole conversation was that day. I didn't want to start engaging in a back and forth debate, but I was willing to listen to the person, to show them love, because I'm a follower of Jesus, right? And I want them to experience that kind of love and posturing and humility, right, that lets us hold out the uniqueness of Jesus to someone. So I know people who, when they talk about, like, talking about Jesus to other people, uh, for them, they're imagining winning debates, and I think it's wrong. Um, I think we need to posture ourselves in listening, hold out Jesus, and if someone wants a debate, I think we can go back to the place of listening and trying to understand, okay? Okay, secondly, Jesus is universal and exclusive. Um, these are the two things. If you're coming to the partner class tonight, uh, we're going to repeat these two things, that Jesus is both a universal and exclusive Savior. We believe this is what the Scriptures teach. This is what the Old and New Testaments teach about the identity and the person of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that both of these claims, that he is universal and exclusive, both of them in their own ways are controversial. Um, this part we can't avoid, <laughs> you know, um, because Jesus uh, was controversial, right? Um, and so when we hold out the uniqueness of Christ in, in calling him universal and exclusive, um, both of these in their own ways are going to sound controversial to different people, or at least one of these things. First of all, Jesus is universal. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all, and that he isn't just the Lord of a particular ethnic group. He isn't just the Lord of a particular, you know, uh, a particular political party. He's not just Lord of people who look like me, think like me act like me. He is Lord of all, right? And we believe that he is a savior for every group of people. Um, the New Testament uses the language of tribes, of people groups. Um, and the vision at the end is that every people group is surrounding the throne, right? That every people group is present in the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping our savior there, right? But people groups have come and gone. Languages have changed for as long as human history has been around, right? And we live in a day today in which these people groups are becoming even smaller and more defined. Um, I want to introduce a word to you that just might be helpful for you understanding what I think is happening culturally right now. It's the word tribalism. And I believe that we are experiencing a heightened degree of tribalism in our culture right now. Um, and all it means is in people's search for community, meaning, paying attention, right, to people's aspirations, um, it means that they are finding people in a particular tribe to identify with. And these tribes, now this has always existed, even in American culture, but they are finding even more particular tribes, right? And the internet is some of what has allowed for this. I can find a particular tribe of people even if they don't live around me, right? And I can identify with them. And some of these tribes are becoming highly specific. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, he may be watching, I'm not sure, but 
there's a ministry that's going to be coming into our network that some of you may be familiar with, Inroads Ministries. And Mike Perna um, is who started this ministry. And last fall, Mike asked me if I could give him a ride to the train station for the board gaming convention that he was going to. Because this is the tribe that God has called him to reach, is this, this board gaming. Now, I'm just going to be 100% honest with you. And Mike, if you're watching, I'm sure I'm not saying everything right, so I apologize. But I did not even know this existed. Did you? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know this was a thing. I didn't know that there was a convention for board gamers. I'm just asking like a million questions of Mike as I'm taking him to the train station. You know, as he's going out to Eastern PA. And he's telling me about this particular group of people. And because they're kind of spread out, um, they gather together at these key places, these conventions. And within the convention, there's subcultures of board gamers, right? So he's talking to me about these different groups that exist within the group. Like this really like highly specific kind of like stylized culture. Well, I would say this. We believe that Jesus is reaching every tribe, Right? As a matter of fact, we believe that Jesus is at work among all of these tribes before we ever showed up on the scene, right? We're just joining him in that work. And this is what I love about some of the way that we are beginning to organize as a network. I think what's needed in this day is people who hear God's voice to go to a certain tribe, right? And you might not cross a language barrier, like they might still speak English, but there's still probably a language barrier, right? Because board gamers are probably talking about things I don't understand, right? Um, but God is calling us to reach these very like particular groups of people, right? And I think God is structuring us for that so that we can hear God and say, okay, God has put this group of people on my heart. I'm gonna go reach them. Now, here's some of why that is controversial. It's controversial because in a tribalized culture, there's a lot of division between tribes. Sometimes there's even animosity between tribes, right? But we come with a gospel of peace that says, no, Jesus is for you. He's for your tribe, but he's also for this other tribe too. This other tribe that you might think has less value or this other tribe that you might feel like is less important. He's for that tribe too, right? And in the context of the reconciliation that we get to be a part of between tribes, uh, we are going to hit some controversial territory. I'm just real quick. Let me, honestly, this is too, uh, too broad of a brushstroke, but let's just talk about Western PA for a second. When I think about God uh, reaching different people in Western PA, um, I, I've been reflecting lately as we start thinking about multiplying regionally. I've been thinking lately about three big groups of people. Um, I've been thinking about the African-American community um, in Western PA, um, located um, largely kind of in different towns and communities in Western PA, the descendants of the African-American migration from the South that came up into northern industrial cities to escape Jim Crow. Um, I think about those communities, you know, in our area. God has been working in the African-American communities of Western PA. And for some years now, he's called us to partner with what he's doing there, right? To serve um, and to see what God is doing. So I think about that community. I also think increasingly about the growing number of immigrants and refugees who have moved into the Pittsburgh area in the last um, 10 years in particular. There are neighborhoods, when I first started in ministry, I was serving in some African-American neighborhoods 
um, near to the city. And some of those neighborhoods now are completely Iraqi Syrian or completely Somali. Um, just huge populations of immigrants and refugees that have moved into our area. Chelsea and I were in Robinson yesterday. So many Arabic speakers, so many Spanish speakers, right, when we were in the mall um, at Robinson yesterday. And, and so God has brought these groups of people around. Paul says it in his speech that God arranges the times and places where people should live so that they might reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Last week, I sat with an Egyptian pastor who was planted a sister church of ours, um, not far from here, actually. Um, and uh, he, had, he came here for seminary, grew up in Egypt, came here for seminary. And while he was attending seminary, he had a dream in the middle of the night, and Jesus appeared to him and told him that he wanted this guy to be a missionary to Arabic speakers, particularly to Muslims in the Pittsburgh area. Um, so he's like planning this church, and we're going to get to be part of that story. Some of you will probably get to visit with me eventually. Um, um, he moved here with his family. Uh, amazing stuff, you know, happening. Jesus is at work reaching these particular groups of people, right? Jesus is at work among the tribes, right? Jesus is at work. Um, and we're just joining him with what he's doing. So I think about the African-American population. I think about, you know, the immigrant refugee population. And then I also think about... Um, the white population in Western PA that is kind of the descendant, the descendants of um, Appalachian um, kind of experience, um, particularly, you know, white poverty and how poverty has, you know, shaped the experience of those groups of white people in Western PA. We have a lot of white people who are experiencing poverty, right, in Western Pennsylvania. So I'm, I've been thinking a lot about them too. Now, Here's the interesting thing. I've been thinking a lot about these three groups, and I don't have to tell you that everything in popular culture, everything in the news media, everything is saying that these groups should have nothing to do with each other, right? Um, their experience is different. Often their politics are different. Often there's been wounds and hurts, right, between these groups of people. So what do we do? Do we just say, well, like, it is what it is. The division exists. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, do we say, okay, we're going to go into, you know, different tribes of people and see what Jesus is doing there, but stay away from each other, you know? Or do we say that Jesus is a universal Savior and that he is, there's only one Savior and only one family, and so he is bringing reconciliation across these tribes. See, I think, wouldn't it be crazy if in Western PA, whatever revival God is starting here in Western PA, included the reconciliation of these groups of people that the nightly news says is impossible to reconcile with each other? You know? What if that happened? Um, what if that is the story that God wrote? Um, that's a story for which he will definitely get the glory because none of us can do it, right? None of us could possibly bridge some of those divides, but I think it's what God is doing. We also, i got to finish up here, we also say that he's an exclusive savior, though. I mean, it sounds in paradox to saying he's universal, but all we mean by it is this, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Um, all of the verses that we read just during our worship set say this, that it's in Jesus that we experience salvation, that it is in Jesus that we experience what the Father is giving to the world. And I know that this is a controversial thing to say in, you know, the society in which we live. It sounds like it's 
um, you know, it sounds like uh, we're excluding in ways that are unloving or unhelpful. Um, and I know it sounds controversial, but I think it's also just like human beings um, to be, you know, lost and alone, and then God extends himself to the world in a particular person, Jesus, right? And then we kind of say back, well, couldn't you have done something else? Or couldn't there be other options? Or, you know, whatever. Um, and so we do hold out Jesus, right, as the Savior of the world um, and say that he is the way. Um, and I think I shared some stories two weeks ago. I've definitely had conversations with people that I count friends, and they end up asking me this. And so do you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? I'm going to always answer that question truthfully. Yes, it is what I believe. And it will leave the person wrestling, right, with that reality. If this is true or not, there'll be a wrestling that has to happen in their heart. Okay, and then lastly, Jesus will be accepted or rejected. Um, you know, I, I think one reason I love Acts 17 is because Paul listens so well. He postures himself in humility. He tells the story well. He does it masterfully. Um, and then he holds out the uniqueness of Jesus, and at least in Athens, not very many people accept what he has to say. Um, there's a handful that do, but most of the people there do not. This is not a city where there's enough critical mass that Paul is leaving behind um, like a large church, you know, at the end. It's a scattering of believers who respond to the message. Most of them honestly are offended at what Paul held out to them. And I just want to tell you this. This is always part of the risk when we talk about Jesus with people. Um, people have to make their own decisions, right, in following what we, in doing what they're going to do with what we hold out to them about Jesus. And I just want to tell you this. It's freeing for me, at least. It's not your responsibility. Um, all of this, at the end, is God's responsibility, like what he's going to do in someone. And I've talked with people about Jesus, and they've decided to, you know, said, yes, I want to repent. I, I, I want to confess, too, that Jesus is Lord. I've talked about Jesus with people who just wanted nothing to do with it, you know. But I have found that is God's deal to deal with. It's no, it's no, like, invitation for me to get upset or offended. They're not rejecting me, right? They have to wrestle with what Jesus says about himself and accept or reject him. I don't take it personally. This is God's deal, right? My call is just to love the person. It's God's job to do everything else. So I'm just going to keep loving the person and let God wrestle with the person's heart. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say. John, if you could come play. Thank you. Um, I just have to underscore, as we talk about all of this, listening, as we talk about, um, uh, you know, storytelling, as we talk about holding out the uniqueness of Jesus to people, I have to tell you, in my experience, all of this is impossible without prayer. Um, it is prayer. We have this phrase at the gospel tab, go where the grace is, right? What we mean by that, first of all, is go wherever God opens a door in his grace for you to talk to someone about Jesus. For me, partly because I'm extroverted and partly because of how I was trained to tell people about Jesus, talking about Jesus was such a guilt-filled thing because um, I remember this as a high school student. I would get on the bus and feel like I had to tell everybody on the bus about Jesus or like the guilt was going to be on me or something, right? I want to tell you, I don't feel that way anymore. 
For me, it's like, where is their grace for me to have a conversation? Paul's having this conversation in Athens because he was invited into this space, right? He didn't go and kicking the door down. He was invited to this meeting where he's talking to these people. There was grace in that relationship. So I would just ask you, where is, has God given grace, right? Um, where has he given you grace with a coworker? Where is a door opening up, you know, with a neighbor? Where, you know, as you serve somewhere in the network, is God giving grace for a conversation about Jesus? And I, I don't assume that I have grace for every person to have the conversation. This is God's deal. He, Paul says it in Acts 17, that he arranges the places the people should live so that they might reach out and find from so they might reach out and find them. God is the one arranging people's stories, not me. So if God wants to use me in someone's story, great. But if God doesn't need me, I'm happy to sit out <laughs> too. You know what I mean? Um, and so sometimes I just think we've got to take a deep breath and just go where the grace is in these relationships. However, we have discovered over the years here that the more we pray together, the more we find grace for these conversations. The more we find, and I don't think it's because it's not this transactional thing. It's not like, oh God, would you do this for us? Would you do this for us? And if we pray hard enough and good enough or whatever that God gives, you know what I think it is? I just think that the more we pray together, the closer we are to his voice and his heart. And we're just nearby what he's doing anyway because we've been together in prayer. And so God just invites us in, you know? Um, God just says, oh, You've been hanging out with me anyway. Come see what I'm doing over here. Oh, you're still hanging out with me. Come see what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, oh, you're praying together, seeking my heart. Well, come see what I'm doing here. I just think prayer aligns us as a family on mission with what God is doing. So there's no question for me that over the last 15 years, the more we have prayed together, the more these conversations open up. Far more than what I thought. God keeps giving us grace in the lives of people to have these conversations, right? Um, but the second part I would say is, and Jesus teaches this elsewhere in the New Testament, is that, like, if you don't have grace to move on, right? Um, and I think in the places where we just have to move on from a conversation or we just didn't have grace with this person or they just weren't ready to hear what we had to say, I think we walk away from those conversations also in a posture of prayer. Sometimes what's needed is not more words to the person, Sometimes what's needed is not more debate, is not more trying. Sometimes what's needed is just to walk away and pray. And there again, I don't think it's this thing where we're just like twisting God's arm to do something in the heart of the person. We're not praying. Even when we talk about sharing our faith, we're not praying to manipulate the other person, to make a decision that we want them to make. You know what I think the value in prayer is? We're pressing in close to God's heart for this person. The more I pray for someone who's not ready to wrestle with the claims that Jesus makes about himself, you know what happens? The more I love them, which means the gentler I'm going to be with them, the more willing I'm going to be able to serve them. And all of these things, even if they don't believe what I believe, is going to open up the space for God to do what only he can do, right, in their life by expanding my capacity to love and serve someone, even if they're not making some decision that I wish they would make. You see what I'm saying? Um, so it starts in prayer and it ends in prayer.